1: Hi, my name is Michelle. Uh, I live in Denver, Colorado, and I love Twitter. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Neil Shader, and I guess since we're talking about Twitter, I should leave my handle, which is the very creative, uh, at Neil Shader, all one word. My I said Zitron. I love Twitter. I use it all the time. It's a great way to say a bunch of things that if you said them out loud they would call the doctor but they're funny on twitter and it's also a place i've met several of my closest friends hi my name is renee Deckert, and i live
2: in a tiny rural wyoming town and i adore twitter last week as the deal between elon musk and twitter inched toward the finish line really we asked people to call in and tell us what twitter means to them Renee, who lives in Wyoming, live tweets baseball games for an SB Nation microsite.
1: And one of the things that I have learned through doing that is that Twitter is the best sports bar in the world because it brings together people from all over the world in an event to share information and to become friends and to talk to each other. And you have experts who are there and lay people who are there. And it's really a pretty terrific environment for that kind of thing. And you never have to leave your house. And I think that's amazing. Hey, this is Alex Fitzpatrick at Axios.
2: Like many journalists, Alex spends a lot of his time, he would say too much, on Twitter. But lately, that's become less and less appealing.
3: Uh, And that's mostly just because it's become a place where it seems like everybody's looking for a fight uh, and an argument. And it's just, you know, why bother being in a place like that?
2: Elon Musk's takeover might be the thing that seals it for him. Musk says he doesn't want Twitter to be a cesspool, but other than that, has shown little appetite for or interest in moderating content.
4: Maybe
3: I'll give it a couple weeks, a couple months, and see what happens, but I think I'll probably probably be out. Thanks. Bye.
2: Today on the show, it's really happening. Whatever the last era of Twitter was, that's over. Now we're about to be living on Elon's Twitter. What will that mean? I'm Lizzie O'Leary. That's at Lizio, really, on Twitter. And you're listening to What Next TVD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day.
1: Hi, Lizzie, this is Emily Dreyfuss, um Twitter friend and real life stranger <laughs> um, and um, writer and journalist. Like, if a journalist is not on Twitter, do they exist? It feels like a modern day uh, version of does if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it. Does it make a sound? Um, does a journalist matter if they are not on Twitter? Of course, the answer is yes, but Twitter creates a feeling of being the place where meaning is made, where identity is forged.
2: Back in the early days of Twitter, it would have been deeply weird to hear a reporter say that or think that a president of the United States and not his staff would actually use it. It wasn't really clear who Twitter was for. Will Oremus, who covers tech for The Washington Post, says even the company's
4: founders weren't sure. They thought it was for, like, keeping in touch with your friends and telling, like, sending out group text message blasts, basically, <laughs> right? Like, like, hey, I'm I'm at the show at Bottom of the Hill. Like, it's great. You guys should come.
2: But pretty quickly, the platform's ability to spread news and information stood out.
4: One of the first times was when there was a small earthquake in San Francisco, and, like, everybody on Twitter was, like, earthquake. And they were, like, oh, wow, this is this could be a thing for news, right? Because you read it on Twitter before you c- could hear it on any news outlet. And so they started to think about it differently. And, you know, the, the joke about the early days of Twitter is people would, like, say what they're having for lunch or just say, like, you know, the, the most boring, pointless. It was, like, status updates, right? People, yeah. people used it the same way they used Facebook status updates. Um, and, obviously, it has evolved a lot from there.
2: I remember, like, mine were so, um, I don't know, banal. I joined Twitter in 2009, by the way, and I was really skeptical at first.
4: Yes, if you go back to anybody's first tweets, it's almost always pretty embarrassing. I, I, the first thing I started really tweeting about was, I think, the the World Cup in 2010, maybe? And it was just like, who, who cares? Why would anyone care what I have to say about the World Cup? But there I was tweeting about it.
2: I think when you mention... A sports event, actually, that's sort of a great way to think about what those early days were like. Like it felt like a collective experience. Maybe I, I remember the 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 twenty ten World Cup. Like that was a that was a moment.
4: Yeah, and there were these collective moments, and that was part of the power of Twitter early on. Is that it, it was really the, the sort of real time nature and the sort of public by default nature that made it different from Facebook or MySpace or the other options that were out there at the time. And it was actually more real time than it is now, at least for most people. I mean, most people now over I think it, the vast majority of Twitter users now have the algorithm turned on, right? That the software that that decides which tweets you'll see at the top of your feed and they could be from 10 minutes ago, but they could also be from like 3 hours ago or something that went viral that was posted 24 hours ago. Twitter didn't have that until 2016 and so the early Twitter experience it was it had to be real time you were you were only seeing in strict chronological order what was tweeted by the people you followed
2: why do you think it, it grew in popularity because I think one of the things that that sets Twitter apart from from other kinds of social networks is both that it is the place of elites. Countries, celebrities, politicians, journalists, but but also of marginalized communities. And I wonder, like, why you think that kind of dual track growth emerged and and why it emerged on Twitter?
4: So one thing I'd say in general is that new communications technologies and new social technologies are often adopted early by marginalized communities. By, by definition, if you're marginalized, you're not being heard through the traditional media channels, and you don't feel that they're that they're for you. When a new technology comes along. You're often quick to jump on there. Your community is like, hey, let's try this. Maybe we can maybe we can keep in touch this way. We can be heard this way. And so, one of the first big communities to to really adopt Twitter and make it their own um, was Black Americans. So Black Twitter like took off way before most uh, white people and people of other ethnic groups were on Twitter in the United States, um, and it sort of developed a culture of its own.
2: Twitter also flattened distinctions and divides. Of class, nationality, and
4: power. The fact that any that somebody a stranger you don't know can come and like correct you or dunk on you. Uh, those are also the things that make it a place to st- to speak truth to power. Right? You've got the elites on there and it, it at least you know, especially in the earlier days, it was very hard for them to shut you up, right? Like if you yeah. were a nobody, if you were a nobody but you had something to say and you had the force of your convictions, you could get on there and argue with the most powerful people. And even if they didn't want to listen to you, you might find hundreds of other people who are like-minded and who are saying the same thing. And so Twitter helped to fuel these grassroots social movements, whether it was, uh, you know, whether it was Ferguson, um, whether it was Me Too, um, you know, the Arab Spring. And I think it was partly because of that, of that nature where you don't have to be friends with somebody to hear, to hear from them.
2: Yeah. What do you think of as the big kind of like tent post moments that prove that thesis or or prove a complicated version of that thesis.
4: I think Me Too is a great example of what makes Twitter different from all the other networks. Me Too was a hashtag and it was such a powerful hashtag that it became the name of an entire social movement which was not you know started in the US but spread to countries around the world and it was a, a reckoning and a rethinking of gender relationships and of, um, you know, the the sort of tacit acceptance of abuse and, and harassment by men in society. A lot of it played out on Twitter because this was a place where you could, as a victim, you could speak up and say, hey, I was victimized And people would hear you and they would validate that. And they, you would get likes and you would get retweets and you would, you would make connections with other people who had been victimized and, and, Again, they don't, didn't have to be your friends. They could be people anywhere around the world with whom your your tweet, your experience resonated. And so it was just—I mean, I think of it sometimes like a movement on Twitter. It's like this drumbeat that's like distant at first and, and sporadic, and then it gets closer and closer, and then you realize that like it's this whole like march of you know tens of thousands of people who are who are you know marching in to say, "Hey, we demand to be heard. We have something to say." Now it wasn't just Twitter. I mean, in, in in any case, whether it's the Arab Spring, whether it's Black Lives Matter, it's not just Twitter. I mean, Twitter is one place where these these movements gain momentum and, right. and where they play out publicly. Um, you know, there was work, critical work, by the traditional media in the Me Too movement. Um, you know, Jody Cantor uh, and Ronan Farrow um, and and, and many Megan others. Toohey, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, um, but you know, but Twitter really uh, it. I think one of its one of the great things about Twitter is that if enough people strongly believe something and if it it has a persuasive power you can't avoid hearing it.
2: Do you think the leadership and the staff at Twitter was proud of that?
4: Yeah, Twitter was extremely proud of this. And you know the philosophy of Twitter's leadership has changed a lot over the years. Early on, you know, it post Arab Spring in the early 2010s Um, You know, there was that famous quote from one Twitter executive who called it the free speech wing of the free speech party. You know, they thought that their their mission was to allow anybody to say anything, but it it went back to this idea of the ability to speak truth to power, right? The fact that you could be anonymous on Twitter meant that if you're a dissident in Tunisia or Saudi Arabia or Iran, you could speak up and be heard on Twitter without having to give away who you are and get arrested and put in jail. And I think that part, I mean, that, that has remained part of Twitter's mission is the ability to let people speak truth to power.
2: But the flip side of a platform that allowed anonymous posting and access to every other user on the planet was trolling and harassment. The same things that protected a dissident protected bad
4: actors. Black women who saw people... Posing as, you know, white men posing as black women and pretending to be black women to try to divide, um, you know, the, the feminist community, the black feminist community against itself. Um, this was a, 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 it was called the hashtag was your slip is showing. Um, some some black women on Twitter discovered that these, there were these trolls um, coming from sites like 4chan um, trying to just sow discord, um, you know, among their community and they called it out. I mean, it became clear that that this same element of the ability for anyone to say anything to anybody meant that people could gang up to actually silence people. They could gang up on marginalized people um, and, and you know, mess with them, harass them, call them horrible names uh, under the cover of anonymity. And so the past five to six years of Twitter's history has been trying to reckon with that dark side of the, the public, anonymous, free speech element um, and see, you know, can they maintain the, the the can they keep Twitter a place for social movements and for political discourse and for freewheeling arguments and discussions, but also make people feel a little safer. Twitter has been
1: just vital to me as a mom. Uh, I homeschooled in a rural area, and Twitter was my community of like-minded moms. Uh, we lived in a really red area and I had to guard how my local perception was perceived. We all need that place where you can just be yourself and you can just talk about what's going on with you and your family and get support and advice
2: from people who really know you. In these voicemails that, that we've been getting from people, I'm really struck by the, the way people found their tribe, like the way they found community. Um, we got a number of voicemails from people in rural communities saying that Twitter allowed them to talk to, to other people who they maybe wouldn't have met. And I feel like that is maybe something that people like you and I forget about when we think about the role of
4: Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's something that Twitter has in common with the early internet. I mean, one of the one of the glories of the early consumer internet was the ability for people in far flung, flung places to connect with others who shared their interests, whether it was you know, photography or birding, or you know, something much weirder or kinkier. Like, you know, the internet made that possible—that instant connection with people you would never meet in real life. And Twitter has that. Twitter, that that is that is part of Twitter's DNA. And again, that's something that that sets Twitter apart from the biggest social networks, which are really about connecting with people you already know. Um, you know, Facebook is about your your friends and your family and your old forgotten high school classmates. Um, Snapchat is a place to connect with your your closest friends. You know, and maybe follow some celebrities too. Um, TikTok is a, is, a, is a different beast where it's really, it's. I, I think of TikTok more like cable TV, right? It's like entertainment has been produced for you and then you sit and mostly watch it passively. But Twitter is really the place that keeps alive that spirit of the early internet um, where, where you yeah, you can find your tribe. You can connect with your people.
2: I also, I just, I feel like we need a moment here for fun. Um, April 28th, 2011. Ed Balls, a British politician, tweeted, "Ed Balls."
4: Did, did he do that on purpose? I'm trying. Or did no, he was out?
2: searching for his name. He was searching <laughs> for his name, and he tweeted his name instead. And now, April twenty eighth is Ed Balls Day. And I'm sorry, man. It's just funny. Like it's never going to not be funny.
4: That's beautiful. Twitter is funny as hell. I mean, that's that's like you know, that's the thing about Twitter. It's not, you know, it's not just one thing. It's, it, you know, it's, it's political arguments and it's, it's harassment and bullying, but it's also funny people. It's like so comedians funny. are on Twitter. There are, they are comedians. But like where-
2: Regular people just roasting. I mean, it is, that is, that honestly is where I find the most joy.
4: That is, it is a wonderful thing about Twitter. I can, I mean, I have a list. I actually have an Evernote file of my favorite tweets ever, like the funniest tweets ever. There was one. There was one who. There was like, um, I'm gonna forget who it was, but somebody tweeted at the Paris Review, like, so, so is Paris any good or what?
2: Patricia Lockwood. Yes, yes, that one is in the top of my brain.
4: Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's a, it's a, it's a genuinely funny place, and it's like it, it's, it's this humor mixed with the darkness and like the the horrible news of the moment and the fighting and it's just it's this weird stew that's not like any other place on the internet.
3: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
2: If we lose here it'll be fifty years before we ever get back up again
1: like the drag queen say take out the earrings sharpen the nails there ain't no going back hi this is Tina Winsett I'm at tm Winsett on Twitter i'm I'll be fifty nine this week um been on Twitter for I think twelve years um it's really important to me, mostly because I am a full-time caregiver for my adult, um, nonverbal autistic um, daughter. So there is literally some days that my only actual conversations are on Twitter. On the whole, for me, um, Twitter's certainly been a positive experience. I've definitely had some run-ins and a couple of experiences with where people, you know, getting drug into some some nasty crap. But, you know, the minute that happens, I mute and block and just don't deal with it. So I'm hopeful, you know, I am I hope, although I don't have a lot of hope, that things won't change dramatically if mess does end up
2: running the place. But I guess we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. So, in December of 2015, Twitter introduced its policy on hateful conduct and abuse, and this, to me, feels like a significant turning point. It, it was like a recognition that the run-up to the 2016 election, things were bleak, and I wonder, I wonder when you think harassment. Became what it is in modern Twitter.
4: it just I think very quickly became clear, especially you know especially to people from minorities or marginalized groups, that that wasn't the case, that these that the real world power relationships and biases and bigotry and hate would be replicated online and in, and in some ways actually worse. Because if you call somebody a hateful word in public, there are often social consequences to that. But if you can do it under the cover of anonymity online, you can get away with it. And it feels like people feed on that, right? Like it feels, they feel like they have power all of a sudden. People, you know, maybe things aren't going great in their, in, their no, in their offline life. They can get on Twitter and join up with other angry, hateful people and gang up on people that they don't like and say the things that you're not allowed to say. And that feels good to them. And So Twitter, Twitter, you know, became a place for that.
2: Probably the first truly high profile example was GamerGate. In 2014 and 15, women like critic Anita Sarkeesian and others were the targets of a coordinated harassment campaign after calling out pervasive sexism tropes in video games. And that's what Gamergate is responding to. They're actually responding to the fact that we're saying gaming can no longer be this little boys club anymore, that there are many of us who have been playing games our whole many of us women who have been playing our games our whole lives. Tensions were so high that Utah State University had to cancel a talk by Sarkeesian after someone threatened a mass shooting.
4: It started partly on the you know the four chans, the eight-chan's, the totally unmoderated internet sites um, that, that tend to attract the you know the most hateful people. Um, but Twitter was one of the places where it played out, and and they they picked a few targets who were mostly feminists in and around the gaming industry. And and just mercilessly, man, do, like doxed them. You know, gave, gave published their personal information. Um, you know, rape as it, like rape threats, death threats, uh, horrible comments about their personal lives, their personal appearance. Just, I mean, it was basically stalk. It's like it's like getting stalked by ten thousand people at the same time, and so they find like you know they finally were able to be heard i think around 2014 2015 and the and twitter you know the media started to recognize it was a problem and then gradually twitter started to recognize it was a problem and then as you said twitter started you know very slowly and gradually to try to figure out how do we address this how do we make twitter feel like a less dangerous place
2: the way the company handled that was to really think about Content moderation. And I wonder, particularly as we're in this moment going forward where Elon Musk is going to do whatever he's going to do with content moderation, um, how important has moderating content become to the at least pre Musk Twitter organization?
4: Every website that allows users to talk to each other quickly finds that if you don't set some rules and enforce them, you're going to become one of the places on the internet that all the worst people gravitate toward, right? Because there are, as long as there are, you know, as long as in society, there are things in polite society, there are things you can't say. And as long as on other places, other parts of the internet, there are things you can't say then all the people who want to say those things, right, the people who want to use the N-word, the people who want to, you know, uh, threaten people with rape, the, you know, that kind of stuff, the people who want to post child pornography, um, they will go to your site if you don't if you don't have any rules. And, and so you, the, this idea that you can just not have rules and it'll be this great place for free speech has been proven wrong again and again. Because if you don't have those rules... It will be a place for free speech for the people who want to post the absolute worst stuff and everybody else will just leave because they don't want to see that stuff. like they have a choice, right? And so gradually content moderation for Facebook and for Twitter um, has become a significant part of their of the service they offer, right? like it's it's like a it's a core, I think it's really a core part of the product is how how, good is the discourse, like how much horrible stuff is, is on there. Um, it's, it's like quality control, right? Like it's essential to any any kind of business. But it's very much a work in progress. And I don't think, you know, I think most people who use these sites, again, especially if you're somebody who's from a marginalized group, would say that they're not near that they, they still haven't gotten it right.
2: Many, many, many words and many podcast hours have been spent on Donald Trump and Twitter and and Twitter's deplatforming of of President Trump. Um, do you think Trump would have been president without Twitter?
4: I think what we can say is that Twitter really helped Trump to build his brand. I mean, it was really it was you know you can look at just look at the amount of time trump spent on twitter and then look at the outcome in terms of the following he built there i'm not talking even before he got the gop nomination right like he built a following on there um you know questioning barack obama's birth certificate and yeah. um you know um uh you know just you know saying the things that that you aren't supposed to say that was that became his brand on twitter and people, you know, a certain segment of, of the population loved that, and that that segment happened to coincide with a lot of the more sort of hardcore Republican primary voters. And so it wasn't just Twitter. Again, it was it was his rallies, right? It was his ability to rile up a right. crowd um, in person. You know, it was it was the way on a debate stage on TV he would call out his his fellow Republicans, and you know, his as his his followers see him as like telling it like it is, right? But it, you know, other people might say he's just telling them what they want to hear. But anyway, there's a lot of things that contributed to his rise. But Twitter was was certainly a linchpin of his brand building, both both you know, on his rise to the presidency, and then during the presidency, it was it was a place where he would make you know, he would make policy and surprise everybody and dictate the the news cycle of the day with just whatever thought happened to cross his head. Um It was in, an immensely powerful megaphone for him that just changed the whole relationship between a between a president and the media and and the populace.
2: Elon Musk has said he will allow Trump back. Uh, And I I wonder, actually, if we could just game out, like, a few attributes of this Elon Musk Twitter, um, recognizing that this stuff is really hard to predict. (sighs) I guess one question is whether people will leave. Or maybe a better version of that is who will leave? What kinds of communities might leave?
4: We saw when Elon Musk first launched his bid for Twitter you could actually see with a data analysis that some of the top conservative and right-wing figures on Twitter gained followers and some of the big liberal and left-wing influencers on Twitter lost followers. It's really hard to, you know, without being inside Twitter, it's hard to get a bead on the exact numbers, but that just gave this fascinating window into the Musk effect. He, He is here to make Twitter feel safe again for the right, to feel safe again for the people who want us, you know, who, who who don't want content moderation and don't want to be told what they can and can't say. And to reverse a lot of what Twitter has done over the past, you know, several years to try to make it a more safe place for the left and for people who are marginalized. Um, and he will say, he will make noises about how he's a moderate. He'll say things like, well, I think if I'm Pissing off the, the most extreme 10% on both sides, then I'm doing a good job. But then he systematically responds to and amplifies right wing figures on Twitter and doesn't do the same for the left and usually criticizes the left. And people get that. It's not a, He's not fooling anybody, right? Like he is more aligned with the right than the left, and the right loves that. I mean, if Trump comes back to Twitter, it's going to let the air out of a lot of these right, you know, sort of right. Um, right-friendly versions of Twitter that have cropped up in response you know as Twitter mm-hmm. has moderated content more aggressively we've gotten Gab and Rumble and Parler and Truth Social I think a lot of the folks who gravitated to those will come back to Twitter and then a lot of the folks who are are on Twitter uh, and and who don't want to have to deal with like neo-Nazis or or racial slurs uh, every day in their feed will leave and some of them will do it right away and others will do it gradually
2: but, like, to go where? What are the options?
4: That is a great and They haven't figured that out yet. I don't think there will be anything quite like Twitter, and so I think there will be a strong pull for most people, even if they don't like Musk, even if they don't like his policies, to stay on Twitter. It's really, you know, it's a, it, it'll, be, it'll play out gradually, uh, and it'll, it'll be partly based on how Musk handles the company.
1: Hi, my name is Stephen, and I joined Twitter in April of... 2007, and was immediately addicted, and loved it so much that um, in 2010, I started applying for jobs there, and it took me five years, but eventually, I got one, and I worked there for almost five years, and to see what is happening to this place that I invested so much time, energy, and love into, being destroyed by this megalomaniac, is absolutely heartbreaking, And I just can't tell you, I can't quantify how sad I am for the tweets, uh, the Twitter employees that are there now, and all the past ones that have worked so hard to build um, this purpose. Thanks for asking.
2: I think an important, if nerdy, thing to dig in on here is the distinction between a public and a private company. When you are a public company, you have to disclose a lot of things to regulators. You have a responsibility to your shareholders. You have to, you know, show things to your board. Um, A private company does not have the same responsibilities. And yet, Elon Musk still wants to make money here. You know, Twitter has not been a barn burning success monetarily. And so I wonder what the yardstick is for him to consider it successful.
4: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, there there are all sorts of things that change right away when it goes, you know, assuming Musk closes the deal and takes it private. Um, the board will disband, you know, it will eventually be delisted from the stock exchanges. It will stop being required to post qu- quarterly earnings reports, which are often, you know, the best window that the public and the press get into the, the inner workings of a company. Um, it will stop having to do those calls with investors where the CEO talks and the CFO talks and they get asked questions about their plans. Um, the whole thing will become more opaque in that sense. I also think under Musk, you know, the whole thing will become more transparent in other ways, right? Like he's, he's very impulsive. I mean, he's the kind of guy who doesn't, basically doesn't face consequences for anything he can say or do, um, you know, a little like Donald Trump in that way. And so that has taught him that he doesn't have to have a filter. It's so tempting to make the analogies between Trump and Musk because part of why you have to follow them is because they don't have a filter and because they will say stuff that's going to change the world in some way without having run it by anybody else and you'll hear it first, right? If you're on Twitter, um, so uh, Musk, I, I'm confident Musk will do that, and so we'll get we'll get like constant weird, you know, insights into what he's thinking and what his plans are. But only what he really only what he wants us to hear, um, and so the accountability will go down, and so all of this the discourse around Twitter will just become sort of less reliable and less fact based and more based on w- what Elon tweets and what his employees leak because em- his employees are not you know a lot of them don't want him as the boss, and a lot of them are going to leak to to you know people like you and me and the press
2: <laughs> and yet he's already out there trying to mollify advertisers he he tweeted a note saying, you know, obviously Twitter cannot become a free for all hellscape where anything can be said with no consequences. He knows that 89% of Twitter's revenue came from advertising and that that this deal has got a lot of debt. I believe it's 13 billion dollars attached to it. So like he's no dummy. If he if he blows the thing up with pure hate, pretty hard to get major advertisers to invest in your in your business.
4: One of the things that I think he's doing right is he's entering Twitter, like, making a dumb dad joke about, like, you know, he's bringing in a sink and saying, let that sink in, you know, playing off the Twitter (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) meme. But it's carving a friendly figure, right? Like, he's not storming down the door with, like, you know, Stephen Miller at his side or Blake Hmm. Masters at his side, right? Like he wants to, he wants to present a friendly face. He wants to come in and tell advertisers, look, I know that I've talked about how much I hate advertising, but Hey, now that I own this company, like I, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to do my best to make advertising work here. And I look forward to partnering with you. So he's going to give it a, you know, he's going to give it an effort. The question is whether he has already sabotaged himself to such a degree that that it's sort of like he can't turn that ship around.
1: I'm, I went to Watergate and what's going on now in our country. I've decided in the last few days to start posting a bunch of uh, memes uh, that, that I had captured what, six years ago. And it, it's important to me for my grandchildren, my children, other people's uh, family that they can still have a country
2: to live in. I think it could be easy to have somewhat flippant conversations about some of this stuff, but we are staring down the barrel of the midterms and you just wrote a story about kind of Twitter's, Twitter's role in, in preparing for the midterms. I think it's important to note that this social network still plays a pretty big role in, like, American democracy and discourse, which feels very weird, but is also real. How big of a test are the midterms?
4: In some respects, we should be talking way more about TikTok, right? Because young people are spending all their time on TikTok. It's it's already far surpassed Twitter. People spend more time on Snapchat than Twitter. But... <laughs> the people who do spend time on twitter as you've mentioned are the you know the politicians are on there their their staff members who write the policies are on there their communications managers who shape the messaging are on there the media are all on there like pretty much right like maybe there's a few people in the media who aren't on for their health or sanity or whatever other reason but you know the media are on there and, and so when all the, when sort of all the people who who shape the public political discourse are on Twitter. It does matter, even if most people aren't on there. And it matters, especially in the context of something like the U.S. midterm elections. And something like the midterms are really important on Twitter, because especially in the days leading up to, to election, it's a place where we've seen that people will try to mislead voters. They'll try to say, hey, if you vote by mail, uh, that's not going to be counted. It's fraudulent." or Uh, hey, go ahead and vote by mail, like make sure you vote by mail today, when actually those people know that the the deadline for voting by mail has already passed. They're trying to like literally manipulate the election. I mean, it's, it's, you know, and and that happens on Twitter and it happens at a pace that it's really hard, even if Twitter, you know, even if Twitter has its rules, it usually takes them, you know, hours or days to, to enforce them. Well, here's the case on election day where you may have minutes or hours to try to stop a viral lie from from spreading across the country and changing the results of the election. And so they have geared up they're they're doing their you know they're they're trying to mobilize all their forces. We reported that they even take volunteers from across the company at this time of year to like sort of sort of emergency election help. Um and yet all this is happening right as Elon Musk walks in the door with the sink and could potentially change everything. And we know Elon Musk is not fond of content moderation. So Twitter has become a real wild card all of a sudden in the midterm elections.
2: Will Oremus, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Will Oremus writes about tech for The Washington Post. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. And our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. You get all your lovely Slate podcasts with no ads. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. All right, we will be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.
0: Coming soon from Slate Podcasts.
4: So, first it was Dade County.
0: Voters in the Miami area repealed
3: civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin.
0: In the late 1970s. Cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people.
3: And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all.
0: A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity.
3: Homosexuality is a most
1: repulsive lifestyle.
0: His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California.
1: Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative.
3: It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality.
0: Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. rights rights With so much at stake, young people became activists.
3: We were all coming out all day long, every day.
0: (laughs) And activists became leaders.
2: My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you.
0: (laughs) Slowburn. Season 9, Gaze Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen.
2: If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again.
0: Like the drag queens say,
1: take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.